0: This podcast is sponsored by Position Green. To be an insider, you can subscribe to the Green Insider podcast, powered by eRenewable, wherever you get your podcasts from, and please leave us a five-star rating.
1: Welcome to the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast host, Mike Niemer, will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space education's important to us because it's important
2: to you, the listener. Now, here's Mike Niemer. Welcome into another edition of the Green Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Culver, and with me as always is the CEO of eRenewable, Mike Niemer. On today's show, Mike is joined by Dr. Simon Schielebeggs, Chief Vision Officer at Handprint. But before we jump into that conversation, we have to check in with Mike's better half, eRenewable CEO, Anne Niemer.
0: Position Green helps companies build resilient and sustainable organizations. Position Green has a unique combination of ESG software, advisory, e learning, and assurance that drives sustainability success and empowers positive change. Visit positiongreen.com to learn more.
2: Thanks, Ann. And now here's Mike Niemer with Dr. Simon Schielebiggs, Chief Vision Officer at Handprint.
1: Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, Power Bay Renewable. I'm Mike Niemer. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Simon. And I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce your last name. I have no chance of pronouncing it. He even warned me about that. So I'm going to let him introduce himself here shortly with a company called Handprint. Uh, and Simon, you're in Singapore, is that correct? That is correct. Very good. So before we get too far, please let everybody know, how do you say your last name?
0: <laughs> so my name is Simon Schielebix. I'm originally from Belgium, and yeah, nobody who is not a native Dutch speaker can pronounce that name so don't feel bad about it
1: that's okay dr simon but anyway
0: (laughs) thank you so much
1: for joining us on the show just like most of our shows when a new guest comes on uh we'd like to have you introduce yourself a little bit about your history and your journey and lead it right up into why you founded a handprint and what handprint's all about and we'll start going from
0: there so simon take it away sure so As I said, I'm Simon. I'm originally from Belgium. I have been in the sustainability space probably since, really since university. When I did my first degree, I wrote my initial dissertation on Buddhism and economics, thinking about like, what would the goal or the outcome of the capitalist system be if the goal was not profit maximization, but the alleviation of all suffering for all species on earth. So so I was a weird kid. And then I went on to to major in business ethics and corporate social responsibility before I spent a year traveling and then joined a consultancy that was really focusing on the intersection of innovation and sustainability. After a few years of being a consultant, I got bored. I felt like being a consultant really doesn't allow you to dive deeply into a problem, deeply understand the fundamental questions. And, and so I went to do a PhD in the UK on the intersection of innovation and sustainability. Eventually I became an academic, moved to Singapore to join Singapore management university and. A couple of years into just being an academic and actually being quite happy just being an academic, we went to to Myanmar. And we then is my at the time postdoc and now co-founder and I. So we went to Myanmar to study an organization, a nonprofit that was doing large scale mangrove reforestation. And this was a really interesting. They were run by a 79-year-old Norwegian guy who spent his whole life, I mean, the golden years of his life, kind of walking around the swamps planting mangroves. Uh, They were using drones for planting trees. They had just done, this was in 2018, they had just finished an ICO to, uh, to raise money for mangrove restoration. And they had incredible reasons for why they wanted to protect nature by... By planting mangroves. And the main reason was that in 2008 in Myanmar, there was a big natural disaster, a cyclone that hits the coast of Bengal and killed just over 138,000 people. And if we look at the data from that horrific event, you can really see that the areas where the mangroves had been cut were the areas where most people died. And so we came to this realization Ryan, my co-founder and I, that, that protecting nature is fundamentally about protecting people. And we came back from this trip and two weeks later, Ryan told me that he had set up a company and made me a director. And that was our original company, which is a nonprofit organization called Global Mangrove Trust, where we work on large-scale mangrove restoration. And out of that nonprofit, and then some work Ryan and I were commissioned by the UN to do on sustainable digital finance. We kind of created all of the ideas that underpin what Handprint is about now. And the moment we started collaborating with a much more seasoned entrepreneur, Matthias, who is now our CEO, he decided very quickly into the early stages of our collaboration, like there is too much technology and there's too much potential into what you guys are working on within this nonprofit to house all of that in a nonprofit. And so he decided let's set up a new company, that's what Handprint is now, that is actually going to take this technology and some of these ideas that we developed as researchers and just take that to market. And that's uh yeah that's what happened at the end of 20, 2019 and yeah 4 years later we're still around. Well very good.
1: Well, as your chief, you're the chief vision officer and founder of uh, Handprint, and as I look through your website, you know the what jumps off at me obviously is it's a uh, regeneration as a service is what I pull off that right. You don't hear that phrase very often. Why don't you yeah. tell the listeners and educate us what you're trying to say with that one statement there? Right.
0: So <clears throat> regeneration is really on the rise in the sustainability space, right? So most of what sustainability has kind of looked at over the last few decades is a fundamental question, is how do companies reduce the negative impact they have on the environment? And the entire decarbonization agenda, the renewable electricity or renewable energy agenda is fundamentally about doing less bad, not doing something good. Uh, We're trying to reduce waste, reduce emissions, reduce energy consumption. All of these things are about doing less bad. Regeneration has kind of emerged in 2019, 2020 and really became much more popular. That asks a fundamentally different question, which is how do we create positive impact in the world? And you can do this by restoring nature, supporting natural reserves, uh, rewilding and so it fundamentally comes down to a very different set of activities. And what regeneration as a service is really about is how do we make this activity, which is so important for the long-term preservation of our planet, how do we make this accessible to every organization in the world? And the reason why I think this is important is because regeneration is, is kind of mainly famous within the, the realm of regenerative agriculture, right, which is a very specific set of activities that makes your soils healthier and so which obviously can only be executed by firms that are working in the agricultural space. What we are trying to do is make, make regeneration services available to everyone. And that could be through supporting coral restoration, ocean plastic cleanup, uh, the planting of trees, the removing of non-native species, to uh, protecting of biodiversity, lots of things that are currently very high on on the policy agenda and are appealing to stakeholders of companies, but are not necessarily core to a company's business. And so by making that available as a service and designing tools that enable companies to capture value, business value, from supporting such activities, yeah, we've created this well, catchphrase of regeneration as a service. Um, and of course, we're also, as a company, we're a SaaS business. So we are a software as a service. But the f- the real focus of our software is on stimulating regeneration. So, you know,
1: you're episode 223 for me. And this is the first time I've really heard of this type of service. So are you providing it uh, all across the globe? Or do you are you just in certain regions doing it and expanding from there? So
0: I mean, we were born in in Singapore. Our first partners were in Indonesia, and now we are um, we have activities now in seventeen countries. So the way that our platform works is that we <clears throat> we curate, digitize, and monitor the most impactful non profit organizations in the world that work in the regeneration space. So we have partners in Africa, South America not yet in North America, um, all over Asia, that are working on, for instance, reforestation or coral restoration. We bring these NGOs, and it can also be social enterprises. We bring them into our digital ecosystem. We equip them with tools to improve the quality of their reporting. And then we make them accessible in a marketplace, but we also provide integration capabilities. So the simplest example of integration is that, for instance, an e-store can add a little plug-in to its checkout process to tell its customers at the critical moment of decision-making, whether when they're going to say, am I going to buy, yes or no, to tell the customers, hey, if you're buying our products, we're going to plant a tree or we're going to restore a coral or we're going to do something else that's good in the world. And that simple messaging, if it's done in a credible way, changes the behavior of your customers. And that's where the business value comes from. So for instance, we've seen in one of our um, AB testing pilots with a large Australian company that the company, when they implemented our plugin had 16% more sales versus well, on the page where they didn't implement a, a plugin.
1: Well, that that's unbelievable. That's a, <clears throat> such a high percentage too. Yeah. Along with your, uh, pop up in that plugin example that you're going to plant a tree. Are you, uh, Offering carbon offsets for the for planting that tree or whatever the project is
0: you're mining are you creating carbon offsets off of those, all those? Right. So I'd say yes and no. So on the one side, handprint supports direct regeneration, which means that we send money directly to the nonprofit organizations. They are going to plant trees. And then we can quantify the carbon removal. And that, of course, means that a company can make claims about this carbon removal when they when they want to. Carbon offsets, the way they're typically understood, are the result of the purchase of carbon credits, which are certified by third parties. You have VERA, you have gold standard, you have yeah. new standards like oxcarbon. And so some of the regenerative work we do is third-party certified, and as a consequence, is, for instance, eligible for plastic credits or carbon credits. But the vast majority of the work we do isn't. And the reason why we've chosen this approach is that part of our research that I mentioned before for the United Nations showed that up to 80% of the money that companies spend on carbon credits doesn't reach the local communities that are actually doing the work. 80%. That's An incredible markup that goes to the verifiers, the resellers, the advisors, like all of those people that are involved in this space, and they all play a somewhat important role, but they are fundamentally taking 80% of the money that actually could go to impact out of the impact space for credibility. And so what Handprint set out to do is really disrupt this layer and significantly reduce the overhead costs associated with the creation of credibility and so for us it's about it's flipped and so for us 80% of the money does reach the local communities and as a consequence our dollar to impact ratio is vastly superior
1: well that that's a fascinating twist on the same story right I yeah mean, uh, so that's quite creative on your part so You've been in the sustainability space for quite some time, and you've seen the, for lack of a better word, evolution of how this market has continued to grow and how much more it has to grow. But in your experience, Simon, from where you started to the how far we've grown now, but yet how far we have to grow to 2050, which is everybody's kind of target date out there. What percent of a hundred percent are we into this game? Hmm. 10, the 10%. So we, so we have ten, nine nine or 10 times further to go than what we've already accomplished. And you've been in the space for how long?
0: I probably I've been in the space since 2006 and and so let me explain why I say 10%, right? <clears throat> we have a pretty radical, or I wouldn't say radical, but a pretty divergent opinion on this. And, and it's what I teach at at university as well. So as I mentioned before, the sustainability space by and large has focused on reducing negative impact, which is critical. But when it comes down to incentivizing companies to contribute to the long-term planetary health, the focus on negative impact reduction or footprint is really narrow. Now, why is this? We know that globally, 71% of all carbon emissions, all greenhouse gas emissions come from 100 companies, Right. So we basically know that if those hundred companies don't change, nothing else matters. We know that the ability to engage in reduce, reuse, recycle, which is kind of the mantra of the sustainability uh, paradigm, well, that is limited to the companies that are in the business of making things, moving things, or mining things. Globally, as part of the economy, that is less than. 30%, maybe between 30 and 35% of global GDP. That are the companies that really make things, that are moving things, transportation companies, and then the mining industry. So 65% of companies, 65 to 70% of companies <clears throat> have nothing to do with sustainability currently because they're not making stuff. They can't really reduce, reuse, recycle. And their ability to decarbonize is extremely limited because they don't have a big carbon footprint. So this is the entire service industry. This is everyone who works for government, everyone who works for the nonprofit sector, everyone in the digital industry, by and large, they have very little to do with the classic sustainability narrative. And so for all of those companies to become activated, we really need to have this shift towards regeneration where we provide the tools and the, and the motivation, the reasons, for companies to embrace this new approach to saying we're not just going to focus on doing less bad we're actively going to focus on doing something good and once we create this shift we're going to be able to move much much faster and then we're still going to need those 71 massive polluters to fundamentally change their business but as long as companies are not ready to do this or is when the alternatives and say for fossil fuels are not available at large enough scale. um, That's not going to happen, but that's why I'm saying like we're only really at 10% because we still need a massive mindset shift to occur first before we can really go from 10 to 50 and then from 50 to a hundred at a speed that is necessary. But I remain optimistic. Well,
1: let me ask you, uh, you know, I'm in Houston, Texas. So in North America, so many of the uh, cities, counties, states, businesses are quoting 2050 as their target year to to uh, to reach net zero. Yeah, I personally think that's going to be difficult for them to do, just a personal opinion for them to get there. What is your view on whether that's actually
0: achievable in your experience? So I think for the vast majority of companies, Achieving net zero, if it includes a combination of kind of reducing energy, buying renewable energy, and potentially buying some kind of carbon removal, carbon offsets, uh, is pretty straightforward. If you're in the service industry, easy. Yeah. Ernst & Young, BCG, McKinsey, all these companies are net zero. Why? Because it's very simple for them to do. They don't make anything. So the big challenge is really for the manufacturing sector, the transportation sector, uh, heavy industry. And for those companies, it's gonna be very, very challenging regardless of uh, their best intentions. So I do agree that it's gonna be hard. At the individual company level, I think the, the obsession of we have to achieve net zero is somewhat misplaced, it's not very helpful. We really have to think about this at a global level. Like net zero is a global objective. It's a political objective across countries. It's been adopted by companies, but it really is not a very smart way of thinking about it. What companies should be doing is, okay, we are going to create positive impact. We're gonna contribute to the global economy in a way that for most companies in the service industry, Should go vastly beyond net zero. They should become nature positive um, by a factor of ten x. Because for many of those companies, like let even think about like um, insurance companies or banks, very profitable institutions. For them, net zero, especially when you look at scope one and scope two, is laughably easy. What they should do is go ten x beyond that, hundred x beyond that, Um, and then potentially at a global level, it is achievable by 2050.
1: Well, let's get back to your company, Handprint. One and of these 71 companies that you talked about comes yeah. to you and says, Simon, how can your platform help design a system to help us achieve some of these goals? How, what do you guys come in and do first? What's kind of the process for a company reaching out to Handout to uh, attain some of these
0: aspirations? Right, so the way we basically operate would be to look at what is the critical intersection between the company and its core stakeholders. So let's say you have a company like an oil major, right? It could be Shell, it could be Total, it could be Exxon. Um, they come to us and say, okay, we wanna start working with you. That means they wanna start working on restoring nature. And then the question is, how are they going to do this? Uh, the most basic way would be like, okay, here is a hundred million dollars. Because they're big companies, they should they spend a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. Or so here's ten million dollars, and you can just use this to go and plant trees, right? That would be a very simple kind of approach, but it's not very interesting from the in from the stakeholder perspective, because if they just do this and they make it part of their classic csr or corporate philanthropy budget then really nobody knows about it and the risk that they're going to be accused of greenwashing is very high so what they should do is say all right let's figure out how to turn this into an engagement strategy with our key partners those could be the suppliers could be employees could be customers and kind of turn this commitment this 10 million dollar budget into something that for instance, directly involves our employees. And so we have tools that can integrate within employee nudging or employee perks and employee reward software. And that um, you can have something that, let's say within an oil company where they would say, okay, We are going to, we have an existing platform for employees to kind of recognize and encourage each other and send thank you messages like, oh, you were really great during that meeting. Thanks so much. Or uh, thanks for filling filling my boots when I was sick. Here are like hundred points and you can then use those points to actually buy something. And it could be an Amazon voucher but it could also be an impact voucher. So integrating in some, some software like that that can be used by an old company is pretty useful. Focusing on our employees rather than on customers is from the oil company perspective, probably smarter because if they do it too externally focused, the likelihood that they're going to be accused of greenwashing becomes quite high, right? So if a company like Exxon plants 10 million trees and then starts big marketing campaigns around it, they're going to be accused of greenwashing. By virtue of being Exxon, if you plant 10 million trees you're and you talk about well, it, you're a hero, but... If you're Exxon, it doesn't work in the same way because comp- everyone will say, like, you should be doing other stuff, um, like, whatever, changing your uh, fossil fuel fuel mix and so on. So, but we basically operate at this level of the intersection between, in this case, I would say the company and their employee engagement. And then we would integrate in the software that they're using so that they can, employees can reward each other by saying, like, oh, thanks, you're, you're really great in this meeting. I'm planting a tree for you. And that would kind of be the idea. And then it becomes something that is kind of part of the lived experience of everyone in the company, which hopefully uh, motivates people to say, like, hey, we're doing something good. We're actually not as bad as the sustainability um but the purists are making us out to be. And so it creates this kind of positive sentiment, which is very valuable. It can uh, increase employee attraction. It can reduce turnover. So all of those things would be achieved by kind of activating a budget into an interaction between the company and the employee does that make sense yeah
1: that makes perfect (laughs) sense it's a very fascinating view on everything so thank you for that well as we're entering uh 2024 tell us what uh your company handprint has in mind for 2024 and what you're hoping to achieve by the end of it in another year
0: so there are two critical things happening in 2024. One is we are launching, I think on January 1st or January 2nd, we are launching a WeFunder campaign. Um, so specifically for American business angels and kind of small scale investors. And so we're super excited about that. We are, we've set up a company in the US uh, the campaign is almost ready to launch. And yeah, we're hoping that we're gonna be able to raise a little bit of money in order to grow our business in the US. That's really the the key goal. Uh, The second part is that we are in the final stages of uh, signing a large scale partnership that is going to give us access to retail banking. And so we're working with a channel partner that is going to, that has been developing an SDK that to live within iBanking applications that will empower retail banks to create a loyalty point system that lives within the banking app, where if you have a specific bank card, you'll access this loyalty point system and you'll be able to be rewarded for doing transactions, for saving money, for whatever, opening an account, for a variety of things. And the points will be able to be converted into real world positive impact. And the outcomes of this impact will be able to be visualized in the banking app. So you'll see the trees being planted, you'll get videos, you'll get updates from the project that you support. And so together with this partner, we are launching this uh, retail banking product. And we're yeah very bullish that it's going to be adopted by quite a few banks. And yeah, the scalability of, of this approach is, is pretty insane. If we can get like a, bar- a bank like Wells Fargo or JP Morgan, or whatever to adopt this and make this accessible to maybe not hundred percent, but maybe five or 10% of its customer base. And if all those people are gonna spend or earn, I don't know, $5 in impact per month, then we suddenly very quickly talk about hundreds of millions of dollars that is going to be routed into this, uh, this regeneration space. And that could have transformational effects on, on the entire world. And kind of reminds me of this, uh, this story that when I was 10 years old, my mom asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I, and I said, I want to I be the first person in the world to win the Nobel Prize for economics and peace in the same year. At 10 years old, so that should give you a sense of my ambition. And I think what we're building with handprints could potentially help us achieve that. And the rollout in the retail banking space is really the next big step in our evolution to make the creation of positive impact just a part of business strategy global. And yeah, hopefully get many, many more people involved in this because we absolutely need to improve nature's resilience and protect biodiversity in order to... Yeah, avoid catastrophic climate change and biodiversity collapse.
1: Well, you know, Simon, I think you might be onto something with regard to the banking and that app. Yeah, I'll speak for those of us in North America. Everybody belongs to uh, some loyalty club, whether it's at mm-hmm. a restaurant, whether it's at a fast food store, whether it's at a hotel. That's very, very common. So if you guys can get that project off the ground and created, you might truly be on to something. Thank you so much, Simon, for your time today. It's been fascinating hearing about what you're doing at Handprint. And Godspeed and, and good luck to you. You're you're on a
0: mission and I appreciate being a small part of that journey. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yes, you, thank you so much for joining me on eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. Listeners, hope you learned something here today. And I look forward to the next conversation we have with the next guest on the Green
2: Insider. Thanks again to Dr. Simon Schielebiggs for being a part of the Green Insider podcast. And thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Ron Culver, reminding you that if you are not yet a subscriber to the Green Insider podcast, don't hesitate and become one today from wherever you receive your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating.
0: This podcast was sponsored by Position Green. For an introduction to our sponsor or find out how you too could be a sponsor, refer to our show notes to contact eRenewable and the Green Insider podcast.